0: We have been keeping our eyes on the federal courthouse in Washington, D.C., where a grand jury may be on the verge of indicting the former president for his attempt to overturn the 2020 election. That grand jury did not meet today. We do not know why they didn't meet or what that means for this investigation, but the jury is expected to meet again on Thursday. In the meantime, we have significant revelations about what special counsel Jack Smith may be investigating. This week, we got new reporting that the special counsel has been focusing in on a White House meeting on Valentine's Day of 2020, February 14th, which was, of course, months before Election Day. On that day, President Trump reportedly met with senior U.S. officials and White House staff to discuss the election itself. And during this meeting, the president was apparently bragging not just about well, all the things he always brags about, but about just how secure the election was going to be. According to the reporting we have, Trump touted his administration's work to expand the use of paper ballots and support security audits of vote tallies. President Trump was so encouraged by federal efforts to protect election systems that he suggested the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security hold a press conference to take credit for their work bragging about the security of election systems, all the way back in February of 2020. President Trump knew the election was going to be secure. He knew so well that he wanted the FBI and Homeland Security to go out and tell everyone how secure America's elections were. Put a press release out, tell the public, take credit for it in advance. And then something unthinkable happened. A global pandemic. Within weeks of that meeting, COVID-19 was spreading, and it was spreading rapidly across the United States. People were staying home for the most part, but remember, this was an election year. So states across the country started expanding access to mail ballots in order to keep people safe. People could still stay home, but they could also exercise that fundamental Democratic right. By early March, the Republican-led state of Ohio was expanding mail-in voting, in April, states like New York and Kentucky followed suit. And then, in April, that same month, President Trump suddenly decided that the very same election system he had been praising just weeks earlier—that that same election system could no longer be trusted. They cheat, okay?
1: People cheat. Mail ballots are a very dangerous thing for this country because they're cheaters. They go and collect them. They're fraudulent in many cases.
0: And Trump repeated those claims, and he repeated them again and again up until the election.
1: This mail-in voting where they mail indiscriminately millions and millions of ballots to people, you're never going to know who won the election. You can't have that. We have to be very careful with the ballots. The ballots, that's a whole big scam. The biggest problem we have right now are the ballots. Millions of ballots going out. That's the biggest problem.
0: In November... Trump lost the election. At that point, Trump had so poisoned the well against mail-in voting, had told everyone in his party that it was a scam, that those mail-in ballots ultimately, in the end, favored Democrats. And all the groundwork Trump had been laying with the repeated claims about ballot fraud, that became his justification for not conceding the election. When the mail-in ballots were finally counted and they tipped key races to Joe Biden, Trump claimed that the election was rigged, that he was the real winner. Immediately after the election, when Trump's own head of cybersecurity, a man named Chris Krebs, said the election was the most secure in American history, Trump fired him by tweet within days. But all along, it sure seems like President Trump knew that he had lost. He had been briefed months earlier about how secure the election systems were. He wanted to put out a press release about it. And he had admitted privately multiple times to multiple people that he had lost.
2: So we're in the Oval and there's a discussion
1: going on. And the president says, yeah, we lost. We need to to let that issue go to the next guy, meaning President Biden.
0: I remember maybe a week after the election was called, I popped into the Oval just to like give the president the headlines and see how he was doing. And he was looking at the TV and he said, can you believe I lost to this effing guy?
2: And I said, "Like, does the president really think that he lost?
3: And he said, you know, a lot of times he'll tell me that he lost, but he wants to keep fighting it. And he thinks that there
2: might be enough to overturn the election, but, you know, he, he pretty much has acknowledged that, he, that he's lost. So he had said something to the effect of, I don't want people to know we lost, Mark. This is embarrassing. Figure it out. We need to figure it out. I don't want people to know that we lost.
0: That tension between what Trump was saying publicly about the 2020 election and what Trump was admitting to in private, that is what special counsel Jack Smith appears to be zeroing in on, at least according to the reporting that we have in these closing days of the federal investigation. So what does all of this tell us and where might this all be headed? Joining us now is Andrew Weissman, former member of Special Counsel Robert Mueller's team, and co-host of the Prosecuting Donald Trump podcast. And of course, also with us is former federal prosecutor Barb McQuaid. Andrew Weissman, let me first start with you. Um, we are on high alert at all times. Every time I get a ping on my phone, I'm, I'm convinced that this is it, and it's time, it's go time for a potential DOJ indictment. Um, What do you think is happening behind closed doors over there at the special counsel's office? How are we to read the um, activities or lack thereof of the last two days?
4: So, it wasn't that long ago that I was on the inside of this, uh, you know, looking out. And I have to say, now that I'm on the outside, it, you know, it's a moment like this, that it was nicer to be on the inside and, and to know uh, what was going on. But if I take to hazard a guess, uh, from my experience in the Mueller team and other sort of high profile matters, there is an awful lot before you bring a charge of double checking, fly specking. Have you looked at everything? Have you sort of a lot of people are looking over every single word? in a proposed indictment. I mean every single word. And there are lots of people doing that. And that can that certainly is going to be the case here. So I think that is a key aspect. Um, obviously there could be holes, last minute holes that are being filled, whether it's, you know, Burning Carrick or whether it's some people who are suddenly cooperating who had not been cooperating before, that's another possibility. But I still think we're we're really close to the finish line. We we just don't know exactly when that, that line is.
0: Um, Barb, Andrew mentions Bernie Carrick, And for those who have not been following the saga of Bernie Carrick as it pertains to um, January 6th and the claims of a stolen election, he was working on a report for Rudy Giuliani and has now turned over the notes from this report to the special counsel's office after basically foot dragging for a while. It sounds like that report contains a lot of, and this is not an official term, hooey, <laughs> including false allegations of voter fraud and overvotes, oppo research on Dominion Voting uh, Systems executives, shoddy statistical analyses, and witness affidavits of widespread irregularities that sound largely baseless. What is the utility of having Bernie Carrick's pile of interesting notes in the possession of the special counsel's office barb?
5: Well, I think part of it is Jack Smith just wants to know everything that is out there, even if it turns out to be something that is uh, you know, not going to be evidence. He just wants to know what's out there. And With regard to Bernie Carrick and his connection to Rudy Giuliani, one kind of unanswered mystery of this whole case is what happened at the Willard Hotel in that war room? And Bernie Carrick was part of that group, along with Rudy Giuliani. There were connections with Roger Stone, with the people who attacked the Capitol, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. And I wonder whether Jack Smith doesn't want to just sort of close the loop there and see if there can be some connection drawn between Mark Meadows, Donald Trump, and what happened at the Capitol on January 6th. We recall that Cassidy Hutchinson said that Mark Meadows was going to go to the Willard Hotel on the night of January 5th, and she talked him out of it. Instead, he participated in a meeting by conference call. And so to the extent Bernie Kerr can shed some light on what was happening there, I think that could be very interesting to Jack Smith.
0: Okay, so, Andrew, it sounds like there's still some, I mean, beyond the proofreading and the selection of of words and uh, the nomenclature of all of this, it sounds like there's still some material that needs to be checked, some substantive material, whether it's Bernie Carrick's notes or the reporting that we have from NBC News that at least two more fake electors have been subpoenaed to testify before the grand jury in early August. I got to ask you, I mean, how how firm do you think the thinking is, or how firm is it? For, should we suppose that the sort of deadline that Jack Smith needs to get this done before the Fulton County DA, Fonnie Willis, releases her potential indictment, how how serious of a time, a deadline is that, do you think, to the special counsel's office?
4: So I think that the deadline that he, that he might be thinking about is in part Fonnie Willis, but more so... If you're thinking that the American public should have the benefit of a trial and seeing the evidence, whether you, you're you able to prove the case or not, that that should happen before the election, I think that is what's weighing on Jack Smith and his prosecutors. And I think that's the reason that they will be going as fast as they can to... Bring this to a conclusion because it's already going to be a very tight time frame uh, to be able to accomplish that goal, and so I think that's the reason that we're seeing them act so so quickly. And so it's not surprising to me, given just how much is on Jack Smith's plate. Uh, and how quickly he has operated that we're hearing about additional leads and additional matters for him to follow up on, uh, because he has really done a Herculean job in, when you think about how recently he was appointed uh, and how much he has accomplished s- since that time.
0: Yeah, I I, I completely uh, agree with that, Andrew, given just the reporting of the evidence that we have thus far. And Barb, I got to ask you about this Valentine's Day meeting in 2020 that we uh, talked about at the intro to the segment. That where Trump is basically briefed by his various intelligence heads and and is so enamored of the security in place for the election that he wants to put out a press release about it, or suggests the agencies put out a press release about it and brag about the security of the election. How meaningful is that information as Jack Smith tries to establish that Trump knew what he was saying were lies in terms of election fraud? Yeah, I think it's another
5: brick in the wall of the evidence. You know, it's not the whole case, but prosecutors are going to have to show that he had this intent to defraud or corrupt intent, which means showing that he knew he had lost the election. And so to do that, you want to gather bits of evidence from wherever you can. A jury will be instructed along the lines of, because you cannot read another person's mind, you must draw reasonable inferences based on the totality of the circumstances. Everything the person did, everything the person said, everything the person heard. And so to the extent you can build a wall of evidence with all of these different people telling Donald Trump how fair the election was, how secure the election was, at some point the evidence becomes overwhelming and a jury will be convinced that he absolutely knew he had lost the election.
0: Yeah. I mean, just in, in terms of this case and what you're saying, Andrew, about the American public's right to have a trial before the election there, the time, there is a ton of evidence that needs to be plowed through in a potential trial on January 6th. And then there is Mar-a-Lago, which I, I, I have to ask, we have reporting today that there were seven additional search warrants filed in that federal case. How do you read that information? Is that? I know that could be seven search warrants for different parts of the Mar-a-Lago property, or maybe it's seven search warrants for different properties. I mean, how? what inferences should we draw from that in terms of the timeline for a Mar-a-Lago investigation concluding?
4: So, I don't I don't put a lot of stock in that. And In part, um, one of the things that's public about the special counsel Mueller investigation is that we had, in the course of 22 months— over 500 search warrants, and you might be thinking, well, does that mean you searched 500 physical locations? And the answer is no, of course not. But what we did do is do searches of telephones, the actual phone, and then also searches of email accounts. Both of those things require, under the Fourth Amendment and uh, case law, that you get a search warrant. So, this could simply be a question of, Um, different email accounts. And that seems pretty normal for for a case to have those kinds of search warrants. I'd actually be surprised if there aren't a lot more than that, but just unrelated to the Mar-a-Lago investigation.
0: Fascinating. So don't be thinking this is a search warrant for Bedminster. It may just be... Walton his email address that they exactly. need to search. Exactly. Very important inside information. Andrew Weissman, please stick around if you will. I have more questions for you, as I always do. Barb McQuaid, it is always a pleasure to see you. Thank you for your time tonight. Thank you, Alex. Coming up, we have new reporting about what charges Trump may be facing down in Georgia. And here's a hint. You are going to hear the word conspiracy a lot, a whole lot. That's next. And later, the state of Florida strategy to subject its public school kids to conservative indoctrination reaches a new level of absurdity. Stick around for that.
1: Despite what some confused people think, masculinity is not toxic. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app.
0: While we await an indictment out of Georgia related to Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election in that state, there is new reporting out today about what that indictment might actually include. Today, The Guardian newspaper is reporting that Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis has in recent weeks weighed potential statutes under which to charge Trump. And they are solicitation to commit election fraud, conspiracy to commit election fraud, solicitation to destroy ballots, and solicitation of a public officer to fail to perform duties. Now, an example of soliciting a public officer to fail to perform duties could be President Trump calling the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, and asking Mr. Raffensperger to find 11,780 votes so that Trump could win the state. Experts also think the former president could have legal exposure under the conspiracy statute, for the steps that his campaign took to replace the state's legitimate electors with 16 fake Trump electors. Still with me is Andrew Weissman, former Justice Department prosecutor. And joining us now is Michael Moore, former U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Georgia and a partner with the Moore Hall in Atlanta. Michael, let me start with you in terms of uh, the word solicitation and conspiracy sound um, alarming. What, what do you make of these potential statutes and how difficult or how uphill a battle Fannie Willis will have in court to try and prove them?
1: Well, it's a pleasure to be with both of you. Um, you know, this, the, the charges that they're looking at here are, are sort of bread and butter charges for prosecutors. And a, a conspiracy charge is is a fairly simple thing to explain, and that is that it's just an agreement between two or more people to do something wrong here, and they have to take some overt act or some step in furtherance of doing that. And so that could be as simple as having phone calls or sending emails about setting up the fake electors. That could be, um, you know, having people on the... Line saying we're going to pressure the Secretary of State to do something as it accounts to the ballot. So that's that's fairly simple. And the solicitation is just asking somebody to do something. So in this case, you know, there's a question whether or not the phone call will be sufficient evidence to show that he was asking Brad Raffensperger to do something wrong, or was he asking people to go in and take voting machines or data out of certain um, uh, registrar's offices. And so um, if you just think about this, you've got to have an, uh, there's an issue of an agreement and there's an issue of whether or not uh, there, he's asked somebody to do something. And so uh, I think she'll have the evidence there to put that forward. And You know, obviously, we're at the beginning stages of the of the race uh, with whatever charges she comes out with, and they'll have to prove their case at that time to all the jurors. But uh, but but nonetheless, something I think that uh, there there seems to be at least some evidence uh, for her to issue, uh, get an indictment from the grand jury here.
0: Yeah, Andrew, the phone call seems to be critical here. I mean, there's the, the, the request to find 11,780 ballots that Trump makes to Raffensperger, but he also threatens him with criminal prosecution. I don't think we have time to play that entire piece of sound, but just the notion that the president of the United States is threatening the secretary of state on the telephone with, with prosecution, is that sufficient? I mean, do you think that there's any sort of wiggle room on a phone call like that?
4: Alex, I'm really happy that you're focusing on that part of the tape, because I think if you put those two pieces together, the find the votes, the fact that Brad Raffensperger says, but there is no fraud, we've checked, there's nothing there. And then you have the then-sitting President of the United States, not very subtly, saying, you know, it, it would be terrible if you found yourself at the other end of an indictment because of what you're doing. Now, Brad Raffensperger wasn't committing any crime at all. I mean, even if you thought he was wrong, it is not a crime to be wrong. So the idea that he was threatened with criminal prosecution by the president of the United States, I think that is one that, because there will be obviously some additional evidence, I think that goes a really long way with a jury. That is not normal behavior even if you thought uh, that you would won the election, that is not how you behave. And it goes a long way to understanding this was a way of extorting uh, a state officer to not do his duty.
0: Yeah, well, and as you as both of you have pointed out, Michael, you just mentioned that solicitation doesn't mean that the other person has to carry through with the request, right? I mean, because when we're talking about the solicitation to destroy ballots, I can only assume that is when, again, President Trump calls Georgia officials and asks them to conduct signature verification going back two years, which is a much longer window than they are supposed to. Does that qualify as solicitation to destroy ballots?
1: It it, it does. I mean, think of it just in, let's take a non-election example. I mean, Let's let's say somebody wants to kill their girlfriend or boyfriend, and they pick up the phone and call somebody who happens to be an undercover FBI agent, and says, "Hey, I want you to I want to pay you to kill this person at the diner on some night." You don't have to go through with the murder to be charged with the, uh, the asking or the seeking, the solicitation to do it. And so that's essentially what you've got here. And I think Andrew's right. Part of that tape that is so compelling is the issue of whether or not. The president, the sitting president of the time is threatening the sitting secretary of state with some with some criminal um, problem if he doesn't do it. I mean, that's that I think is going to be a a huge issue. That's just like a recorded confession that's been in the D.A.'s hands for this long period of time. So, you know, I I, I think the evidence is going to be significant. I think there will be more motions and appeals and everything else than, uh, you know, we've ever seen uh, in a case. Uh, like this, or there is no case like this. But uh, the evidence, if we just talk about the evidence and what the DA may need to move forward to get an indictment, I think it's been laid in front of her for a long time.
0: Yeah, Andrew, in, in terms of the, the actual charges, like we, we know about these individual statutes, but when, when, you, when we've been talking about Fani Willis, the thing that often follows her name is the word RICO and or racketeering. Do you think that, I mean, if you're looking at this case, is your expectation that these are going to be individual charges or does this fold into a broader RICO racketeering case?
4: I think we could end up seeing both. This is one where you can have a sort of overarching RICO charge. And we know that Fonnie Willis has had uh, some success at bringing those kinds of cases. But that doesn't preclude her from also bringing uh, these individual charges. And so a jury would have um, all of that in front of them. Uh, and so I, you know, I, I kind of suspect we that's what we're going to see uh, because it's really not an either or, or. We can we can see both of those, and um, and so way of also with a Rico really being able to bring in a wide range of evidence to fully explain exactly what happened. And then you can have individual charges that are predicated on specific conversations, on a specific tape recording, and specific conduct. But then you have this overarching charge to lay out just the full scope of um, what she is alleging.
0: Michael, you're a son of Georgia, um, and I'd love if you could enlighten us as to sort of D.A. Uh, Willis and her track record on pursuing these sort of racketeering charges and RICO and how aggressive you think she's being in this particular case, given the reporting that we have.
1: Look, I, I think the DA is known as a, as a capable lawyer and a good lawyer. She's had some success as she's prosecuted some folks associated with the public school system with a RICO case. She's been in the middle of a case, frankly, that has gone on for many, many months, close to I think well over half a year now, trying to select a jury in another RICO case. I mean, you think about these as as generally when we talk about the mafia or drug organizations and that type of thing, and she's used the RICO statute to her advantage. In some other cases, I mean, the the reality of the RICO statute is that it's it's a boondoggle for prosecutors because you get to talk about all the dirty laundry and and not just one particular item. And so uh, she's she she's got some good lawyers working with her in the RICO case. She brought some people in. So I think we're going to see a RICO indictment. I I, I think that can be really the only explanation we're talking about this time lag that's gone on since the beginning of the investigation. So I think we'll, we'll likely see one in the coming weeks.
0: A boondoggle for prosecutors. I'm gonna hold you to that, Michael Moore. It's always good to see yeah. you. Thank you, sir, for your time. Andrew Weissman, thank you for making You're extra good. time this evening. Really appreciate it.
1: Welcome. Great to be.
0: Still more to come tonight, including revisionist history about the evils of socialism and what people are supposedly getting wrong about toxic masculinity. All courtesy of the state of Florida. But first, Donald Trump is on the campaign trail again today, telling reporters he's not worried about more criminal indictments. And so far, Republican voters agree with him. Does this last? We're gonna talk to Claire McCaskill about that coming up next.
1: There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it.
2: Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South.
1: Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Alpha One
5: Niner commence Wi Fi device checklist.
1: Laptops on. TVs streaming.
0: Okay, so this was the headline of a new Monmouth University poll out today. Trump maintained strong GOP primary advantage despite indictments. Despite being criminally indicted twice, with potentially two more on the way, Former President Trump very much remains the figurehead of the Republican Party. According to that poll, only one in four Republican voters are very or somewhat concerned that the criminal indictments would make Trump a weaker candidate against Joe Biden in the general election. And nearly half of them do not think the charges hurt Trump at all. Now, this poll tracks with a larger trend that we have been seeing among, among Republican voters that despite all the evidence to the contrary, none of this is a big deal to them, at least as it concerns the existing indictments. But what happens if special counsel Jack Smith brings forth charges related to, say, Trump's role in the January 6th insurrection or his efforts to overturn the 2020 election? Or, say, if Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis decides to charge Trump with criminal solicitation to commit election fraud, what happens then? Joining us now to help answer that question is Claire McCaskill, former Democratic Senator of Missouri. Claire, as always, thank you for joining me tonight. I got to ask, I know you and I have been following what's been going on. There have been people who have um, been religiously following every turn of the screw as it con- concerns these indictments and the evidence leading up to potential indictments. But do you think the American public more broadly has a real sense of what may be coming down the pike for? for Donald Trump as it, as it concerns a special counsel?
3: I think it totally depends on where you get your information and how tightly your circle of information is drawn. Uh, I'm from a state, Alex, where a whole lot of those folks of that 50% that are for Trump, a whole bunch of Missouri is right there. Uh, certainly the majority of the Republican Party And so they are not going to be phased by more indictments. They have been convinced. They've totally swallowed the big lie. And they've become convinced that this is a plot against Donald Trump. Now, it's very hard for those of us who follow it carefully and who understand the facts and understand the law to swallow that. But that's the reality the Republican Party is in. Now, does it help Donald Trump in the primary? You bet it does. But does it help the Republican Party in this country? No, it doesn't. Because as that poll just showed you, Alex, 40 some percent of the Republicans aren't for Donald Trump. And a chunk of them are really worried about these indictments. They are much more persuadable in a general election to leave their party and reject Donald Trump. Maybe not a primary, it won't
0: be enough. But in a general election, it can reelect Joe Biden. Well, I got to ask you on the on, uh, sort of on the other hand, not trying to draw sort of false equivalents here, but we see the plot that is being hatched out in the open by at least congressional Republicans who are very much doing the bidding of Donald Trump. Today, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, Kevin McCarthy, has suggested a potential impeachment inquiry into President Biden for What? I'm not sure. Lots of questions they have about potential untoward financial dealings. Uh, Those may include a single unfounded allegation that Biden was on some of his son Hunter Biden's business calls or so-called IRS whistleblowers who said that Hunter Biden's tax issues were slow walked. I mean, I, I when you compare this to what Donald Trump may be on the hook for, it seems apples to oranges and that's being euphemistic. But I wonder if the misdirection is the point and whether Republicans can actually be successful in trying to suggest that these two men have both done inappropriate things.
3: I don't think so. I, I don't think it's going to work. They have not produced. I mean, think of the reams of evidence that has been produced against Donald Trump. I mean, we're talking about indictments. On two or three different things, everything from paying off a porn star to um, defrauding the government out of classified, very important national security documents and lying about having them and trying to keep them to false electors to trying to steal an election, trying to influence a secretary of state to not do his job. I mean, it is a wide variety of serious, serious stuff so far. On Joe Biden, they have the tragedy that he has an addicted son that made some very bad choices in his life at a moment when his father was in the public eye, but not one scintilla of evidence connecting that to Joe Biden. And I think most Americans get that. I think most independent voters get that. Polling shows that. So I think this is a mistake by McCarthy in terms of him winning the power back in the House or helping a Republican candidate for president. Because ultimately, I think this is just about him trying to hold on to power as speaker. And he
0: obviously is struggling with that. Claire McCaskill, sage, American sage is what we should call you, former Democratic senator (laughs) of Missouri, and MSNBC political analyst. Thank you, Claire, as always, for your thoughts. Thanks, Alex. Still to come this evening, while President Biden acknowledges America's legacy of racism by designating a monument to the victim of one of the most heinous acts of violence in the Jim Crow South, the state of Florida takes the opposite approach to American history. That is next. What I'm about to show you here is a sampling of the supplemental educational materials that were just approved by Florida's Department of Education for showing in public schools, kindergarten through 12th grade.
4: America is more than just a place on a map. It's an ideal and a set of values stemming from Judeo-Christian principles. Despite what some
1: confused people think, masculinity is not toxic.
3: Most gender stereotypes exist because they reflect the way that
1: men and women are naturally different. Eventually, all socialist countries face serious scarcity of basic needs.
3: Change, however, came to India when the British Empire took control. Along with advancements in transportation, agriculture, and government, the British spread the influence of Christianity and Western values throughout
0: India. Yes, yes, the famously benevolent English occupation of India. These videos are part of a program called Prager You Kids. It is overtly right wing and it answers a question that I have had for a while. Ever since Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed the state's so-called Stop Woke Act, which restricted teaching anything too woke in Florida schools, I have wondered what that will actually mean for lesson plans and class time. Well, last week we got our first glimpse of that with Florida's new history standards that require students to be taught that Black Americans benefited from slavery. And now we have another glimpse, you kids the right-wing nonprofit prager university which is by the way not an actual accredited academic institution it describes its mission as fighting back against the left-wing propaganda pushed on children in schools and that translates to kids magazines that teach about american heroes like charles schwab j p morgan and ann rand or ones that push clean coal and describe climate change as an unproven and debated theory it also means videos about why your kids should back the blue and reject Black Lives Matter. And it also has crafting lessons like building a model version of Israel's Iron Dome, a classic children's activity right up there with Cat's Cradle. There is also lots and lots of overtly religious, quote, Judeo-Christian content. And all of that is now approved for any Florida teacher who wants to use it as supplemental content in his or her classroom from kindergarten through 12th grade. According to PragerU's website, more states are coming soon. And ladies, if that upsets you, maybe take a note from PragerU's kids' video on how to be feminine and, quote, just try smiling. Just try. We have one more story tonight, and it is actually hopeful news about how our country is remembering the darker parts of its history. That's next.
2: When Amy Till, our beloved Bobo was taken from us, taken to be tortured, brutally murdered, back then when I was overwhelmed with terror and fear of certain death in the darkness of a thousand midnights in a pitch black house On what some have called dark fear road. Back then in the darkness, I could never imagine a moment like this.
0: Emmett Till would have been 82 years old today. His cousin, who you just saw speaking there, was with him in 1955 when they visited family in a town called Money, Mississippi. It was there that Emmett Till was murdered by two white men after a white woman accused the teenager of whistling at her. That is the unvarnished and recent history that President Biden commemorated today, honoring Emmett Till and his mother, Mamie Till Mobley, with a national monument. That monument is marked by three sites in Chicago, the church where Till's funeral was held, in Mississippi, the wooded area where his body was recovered, and the courthouse where his killers were wrongly acquitted. The monument stands in sharp contrast to the efforts that are underway in Florida and other Republican-led states to do the very opposite, Instead of looking honestly at American history, conservatives have launched a multi-pronged effort to whitewash it. Joining us now is someone who knows about Republican-led attacks on American history all too well, Nicole Hannah-Jones, creator of the 1619 Project and reporter for The New York Times Magazine. Nicole, thanks so much for making time for the show tonight. I got to ask you, as we look at this moment, you know, I'm reminded that when you came out with the 1619 Project, Trump comes out with the 1776 Commission. And I wonder how optimistic you are about the truth winning out, given the battle at hand.
2: Um, I think that part of the reason we're seeing efforts like uh, Ron DeSantis and the Florida Board of Education to really whitewash the history and so many efforts happening legislatively across the country is because the truth had been winning out that we did have, you know, large numbers of Americans for who for the first time were getting a um, more honest version of American history. And so that's where this pushback is coming from is the understanding that these truths were breaking through. Um, but I, I think it's hard to say that I'm optimistic because we. We are seeing uh, people like Governor DeSantis and, um, you know, his appointees to the Board of Education, um, that they are being they are successfully using the levers of the state to really try to proscribe our understanding of our history. Um, And we're not seeing, I think, enough efforts to combat that.
0: Yeah. On that end, I guess I wonder what you think about monuments and how much they are an antidote to the whitewashing that's happened, the indoctrination, in fact, that's happening in school systems around the country. Do they matter in this fight?
2: Monuments matter, of course. I mean, we we memorialize things because we think they're important for us to know. And so whom we memorialize, how we memorialize, uh, what uh, moments of our past that we choose to memorialize clearly matter because in public spaces, they tell us uh, what we value as a society and what story we want to tell ourselves about as a society. But I actually don't think most of us learn history that way. Um, What's happening in the classroom is much more important because most of us are understanding of American history, of global history is being shaped in two places, It's being shaped in the classroom and it's being shaped in popular media. So I think what we're seeing um, in Florida and um, in other states, conservative states across the country is far more critical to our historical understanding and kind of our collective memory of how we think about the United States and its history. And of course, the reason that matters is that shapes how we think about the United States right now.
0: Yeah. Well, when you talk about collective memory, I mean, I I was so struck and I think all the people that work on the show when we talk about Emmett Till. I think a lot of us contextualize that as, as something that happened a while ago, but Emmett Till would have been 82. You know, we have grandparents and some of us parents who were that old. His accuser just died in April. Do you think of the struggle of, 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 the, of civil rights in the 1950s and 60s as a separate chapter from the civil rights struggle that's going on today? Or do you think of it as sort of one continuum? I'm, I'm, I'm eager to know how you sort of process these moments of national trauma and whether you delineate a uh, sort of ADBC.
2: So let's be clear. Um, my father was about the same age as Emmett Till. He was born in Greenwood, Mississippi. Emmett Till was killed uh, right outside of Greenwood in Money, Mississippi. Um, they were a few years apart. And just like Emmett Till, um, my father's uh, mother had migrated North and would send my father home to Mississippi in the summers um, to be with his grandparents. So this is not an ancient history. I'm 47 years old. A decade before I was born, Black people were being murdered all across the South, trying to fight for basic rights of citizenship, the right to vote, the right not to be racially segregated in apartheid schools and parks and libraries. Um, So. Of course, I see this as part of a continuing struggle. Um, that generation that did not have rights of citizenship in the country of their birth, they're still with us. I interview them often in the work that I'm doing. I feature them in the 1619 documentary series, and they're still fighting. Um for us to maintain the rights of citizenship that we had. And so then you have, of course, this counter movement that's happening, uh, for instance, in a place like Florida, which is why we're talking about this tonight, um, that is really trying to uh, erase that history, trying to uh, whitewash it, trying to make it seem like that is um, unrelated to the society we have, that that's just part of a distant past, that it wasn't really uh, systematic. You know, I was, um, I spent some time looking at the New Florida. The history standards, and I particularly looked at the way that they discuss the Holocaust compared to the way that they discuss uh, the Black American experience. They describe the Holocaust as a um, planned, systemic, and state sponsored persecution and murder of Jewish people. They don't um, talk about Other genocides that have happened uh, in the world when they talk about the Holocaust in Florida, they don't talk about how Jews may have gained some skills that they could use if they happened to survive the concentration camps. They don't talk about any of that. And they make it very clear that this was systematic and even have a chapter on the dangers of Holocaust denial. And then you compare the Black History Standards, which talk about slavery in Asia uh, during the ancient Samaria, that talk about the skills that enslaved people may have gained during slavery. And you see what it is that we're doing here, um, which is really trying to paint a picture of America, of a country that never existed. Um, And they do that in order to justify the inequality that we see in America today.
0: Nicole, Hannah-Jones, thank you so much for your time and amazing writing and reporting. Really appreciate it. That is our show for tonight.